today's scripture reading is Mark 15, chapter 33, uh, verses 33 to 39. The death of Jesus. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Dee. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to get right into it together. And, and, and what we're going to do, actually, is you'll see, I'll have it up here on the screen, and you don't necessarily need to turn along with me. But before we dive in and pick up in Mark 15, verse 16, um, I want to take a step back and spend some time looking at Genesis, the very beginning, because though all of Mark has been building up, this is the climactic point of the whole gospel according to Mark, all right? It began with the birth announcement, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we have marched for a year building up. This We've said that the shadow of the cross is cast over the entire gospel of Mark, and so we've been really building up to this day in Mark, but not just in Mark. This is the climactic point of history, and I submit to you that, that, um, that, that the entire Bible communicates to us what is called or what is understood as the story of God. That all of history is, is a story communicated from beginning to end and that all of our lives make sense in light of the story of God. And so in order for us to rightly understand, to not just grow numb to the cross or, you know, it's everywhere. We talk about this a lot, you know, last week, whether it's a tattoo or an earring or a piercing or something hanging up on our walls, we can grow a bit numb to the cross. So to help us more rightly understand, let's begin in the story of God. Let me pick right up here. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, the very beginning of all time, in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. God, the author, again, if, the, if, if all of life, if the history is a story, God is the author. And then picking right up again down in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created Man, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is good news. This is beautiful. This is how God created life to be. This is what we talked about earlier. Every human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth has infinite 
eternal value and worth in that they are created in God's image. And not only our identity, image bearers of God, right? Like a mirror, or like you take a picture of something, or even your, 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 your children, right? They bear your image, your resemblance. Think along those lines. God said, I want my glory, my character, my creativity. I want, I want a reflection of that. So he created you. He created the person next to you. He created us. And not just in our identity, but in our purpose, right? Some of us are figuring out, some of you are in, in college, some of you are mid-career, some of you are end of career, and, and a lot of us are wondering, what am I here for? What do I do? What is my life all about? I think every person is asking that question to some degree. And, and if we look here, that purpose is to reflect God in everything we do. It's called the cultural mandate, the creation mandate. God said, go have dominion in your relationships with one another, in your relationship with God, in what you do, in your work, in how you play, in how you think, in how you function, in all that you do. Your identity and your purpose has value and worth. And this is the good news of God's creation. But then bad news strikes. Tragedy comes into the story of God. It's sin. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's what we've all heard that word here. Perhaps, I, I'm sure some of us maybe are like, how do you define that? What does it mean? Very simply put, sin is not God. Sin is a distortion to what God created to be good. Okay, sin is the enemy in the story of God. And again, we talked about this morning things we've read this week things that I know many of us in this room have experienced, and we're going to really kind of dig into some of that as we, as we continue in looking at the cross this morning. Sin is brokenness. Sin is essentially the way things are not supposed to be. God created us. God created the world. He said, this is good. It's very good. And then pick up with me as we look here in Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed figs leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We're kind of picking up mid-story there. What happened is there is man and woman creation that God made us to reflect Him in every way. We essentially said, God said, here are the boundaries. Here's what it looks like to have a relationship with me and with one another. Here's what it looks like to be human and to flourish. And then by nature and by choice, we all get this. Mankind said, yeah, maybe that story is not the one I want to follow. Maybe God, maybe you shouldn't be the author or the hero. Maybe I want to take up. I'll pick it up from here. And that's where sin entered into the world. And we turned our backs and we disobeyed God. And we said, I don't want my identity or my purpose to come from you. I want to figure it out from here. And that's what happened. And then this is the result. Nakedness for the first time. Think of nakedness. Right? You're not going to hear that every Sunday in church, by the way. But think of nakedness and, and all that it represents to us in this world. Fear, shame, right? questioning, exposure, vulnerability, all these things. And that's what happens on a spiritual level. Yes, on a physical level in every way. There's fear and shame. And so they try to cover up. And then, picking up in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Something that was supposed to be a delight. God is walking among us. 
our creator, our, uh, the one with whom we have intimate understanding, where we are vulnerable and yet safe. And yet now fear defines that relationship. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Something that should not be. God should not have to say, where are you? You should not have to be here this morning and say, God, where are you? Where have you been? And that's what sin, that's what brokenness, that's what this distorted story has ushered in to the world that we know. And so we hide from one another and from God. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then God continues, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And we, some questions might arise there, but the main point is this, that God said, it is not good that you would live forever in this state, broken, isolated from me, from one another, that the world this way, it's not supposed to be. There are consequences, yes, but God cast humanity out because he begins the good news. It's called the Proto-Euangelion earlier in Genesis 3. This is, we're, we're told this, and God says, I'm not going to let the story end this way. And so God makes a promise, and then continuing on um, elsewhere, he says, uh, I will be your God, and you will be my people, specifically in Leviticus 26, but in a lot of different places, God makes a promise. He says, I'll establish a name, I'll undo this brokenness, I will write the story. I'll make it right. I am God. I'm still God. I'm still the creator. I'm still the author. I'm still in control. And though you are saying, God, where are you? And though there is division and brokenness and ugliness, I will make it right. That is the story of God told throughout the Bible, building up to this climactic point where we are today, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is good news. There's hope and anticipation and yet, here we are today, coming up to the cross. And what we're facing, what we're all swimming in right now, is waters of a different story. Okay, again, I submit to you that we all, wherever you're at, we all live, story is the best way to understand life, right? A purpose, a plot, characters, a hero, an author, all these things. And there are different expressions of a distorted story, okay? Okay. Are you hearing me? The story of God, how it ought to be created in God's image, created with purpose, and then distortion comes in, and there are expressions of the story in every different way. So where we live today, right now, there's the capitalistic story, right? There's the consumeristic story. If I have more, then I will be satisfied. My purpose will be found. And there's the American dream story. There's the, there's the, there's the communist story or the Marxist story story. There's the nihilist story, right? We have a quote from Nietzsche right here on the wall that's specifically talking about music, but Nietzsche was famous for kind of having this perspective that there's no hope, 
basically life is either, you know, seize the day right now, make the most out of it because there's really no hope or go do crazy things or go and just, you know, who cares? Make life whatever you want it to be because it's all hopeless anyway. There's that story. Well, where we are right now, as we prepare to pick up in Genesis and in, in Mark 15 is the Roman story. And that's the dominant story of the day, just like where we are. It's saying, there's not really a God. He doesn't really have a people. Not the God of the Bible. Not the God with whom you are, you are dealing or thinking about this God up there. There's, in, in this case, in Rome's case, it was, well, Rome is your God. Or Caesar is God among us, Emmanuel. He is God who's come to dwell among you. The Caesar. And Rome is the kingdom of God. And so you, you can flourish here if you're so lucky to have been born into a position where you can be a Roman citizen, you can flourish, you can have a good job, you can thrive, you can get a, you can get a college degree, you can do all the stuff. This is the story. But um, if you're so unfortunate to be a part of some other, some other kingdom or whatever, and you want to play with these other gods and these other ideas, then this is what you have to look forward to. The cross is the symbol of Roman strength. The cross is the symbol of flexing our muscle and saying, Rome is the kingdom where you can thrive. And if you want to butt up against it, that's, your, that's what you're looking at. So be afraid. And then where we're brought now by the author of the true story of the universe, the story of God, is Jesus on the cross saying, I'm going to turn that symbol, your symbol, into a symbol of hope. In fact, through the cross, Jesus is saying that he alone is where hope is found, that through him alone, restoration and flourishing will come through Jesus alone, through Jesus' work on the cross alone, no other way. There's no one of many gods, no other options, all these things. What Jesus is proclaiming, and therefore what I am saying here today, is that, is that Jesus alone will give you life. That Jesus alone will restore what has been broken and give you hope. So with that, let me pray and ask God to open our hearts as we now continue to march through this story under the dominant shadow of the cross of Jesus. Because I'm asking you this question. Everyone in this room, I'm asking this question. Does this cross, the cross of Jesus, define your life? Let me pray. Lord, I, I just want to continue to get into this. I thank you for your word. I pray Holy Spirit, I expect that my words can do nothing. But, but I, I, I trust that you can do the work of exposing the cross of Jesus and turning a brutal, ugly, shameful symbol into something beautiful, life-giving, life-defining. So I, I pray that you will, even as we'll see, um, remove the veil or soften our hearts, open our eyes, in such a way to see and respond to Jesus. And I look forward to the end of this sermon as we all are, are, are called to respond in worship and adoration to something that perhaps right now at the beginning is a little confusing. Or let us see the cross clearly and beautifully. Lord, we need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, let's continue on in Mark 15, verse 16. Let me read this first portion where we are. So remember, Jesus, it ended the last part. Jesus was delivered over to be crucified. Now pick it up in 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. And they put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Okay, enter into this story. Crucifixion. That's where we get the word excruciating. Right? If, if something really hurts, the way you want to communicate that, right? Excruciating. It's excruciating pain. Well, that is of the cross or from the cross. That's where that word comes from. There is terrible, terrible pain here. But Mark, as we'll see as we walk along through, the author doesn't necessarily want to get into that, right? We, we, we all know that. A, a crown of thorns doesn't sound comfortable. Getting struck in your head with that crown of thorns doesn't sound very comfortable. But the main point here is shame, is exhaustion, is Jesus that we've had a chance to walk through Mark and look at. And again, remember that this was written in such a way that it would be communicated in one whole sermon, right? Or that it would be read aloud because most people weren't able to read in the time when this was written in the first century AD. Most people couldn't read, so it would be read aloud. Just someone would read through like an action-packed story, and so you would remember all kinds of stuff. Like you would remember, if you think back to a couple months ago, right, Jesus calming a storm. Right? Jesus said, if you're in here, kids, don't say this. Don't say it to your brother. But this is the language that Jesus says. He stands up when a scary storm and he says, shut up. And it is. It's quiet. The storm just goes silent. And everyone looked on him with amazement. Because remember, it says Jesus had authority. That's where we get the word author. So remember, the story of God, the creation of the world. Jesus speaks as one who is the author. And then remember, demons come. Everyone else is terrified. These guys are ripping chains out, and he's crazy. This naked, crazy, demon-possessed guy comes up, and Jesus again says, shut up. And this demon, who everyone else is terrified from, this demon-possessed man just grovels at his feet and falls. This is the Jesus that now we're, it's okay to admit looks pretty pathetic. He's beaten, he's exhausted, he's likely been up for a couple days. He's getting mocked. They put on a purple robe because that symbolizes royalty, and they're like, huh, the king, little king in your little purple robe. They're beating him and spitting on him. And then it transitions right here. Verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So we can just read right past that. There's a couple things I want to I want to point out. And again, while we're looking at this, think about the first time that your hero, whoever it was, was exposed as kind of human. Right? I don't know what that looked like for you if it was a sports hero and then the first time 
right? Like if you saw Michael Jordan winning, you know, three championships and taking a two-year break just to show how great he was and coming back and winning three more championships, you know, right away. And then you saw him playing on the Wizards and you're like, what? Uh, your hero was kind of exposed a little bit. Like he just looks sort of old now. And um, whatever it might have been, your own dad, your own parents, right? You have a hero and then eventually... They're exposed a bit. That's, the, that's what we should be feeling here. This hero, Jesus. This, this king. He, he talked a big talk. He overpromised, if you will, in the very beginning. And now he looks kind of pathetic. Such that he's carrying a beam. And um, someone else has to carry it for him. If you remember, Jesus is a carpenter, right? He was a construction worker. He carried this beam before. So just to help us understand, the, the cross, usually you see different things, but most, almost certainly, he's just carrying the horizontal beam. Okay, because in that day, Rome wasn't in the habit of kind of wasting good wood for just, you know, pathetic people that they're going to hang up on crosses. So they would keep the vertical beam in place, and then each person going to their cross would have to carry the horizontal beam. And Jesus carried beams. He was a carpenter. He did this, right? He, it was something that he did. But he was so exhausted right now that an innocent bystander is just standing there and has to carry it for him. And this guy, Simon, did not want to care. He didn't volunteer. He wasn't like, I'll do it. He's like probably trying to hide out. But Rome had, this, had these rules, right? If you've ever heard before, just if you've ever heard before, like, go the extra mile. How many of you have heard that phrase? Like, go, going the extra mile, right? I put in the old college try and going the extra mile. Well, that comes from this kind of idea where Roman soldiers had all kinds of authority. And they could just stop anyone, especially someone not a Roman citizen, and they could be like, carry my backpack. And you had to, but you had to do it for a mile. So they had that kind of authority. And then that going the extra mile comes from, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, go a mile. Well, go the extra mile. I say, go two miles. Like the kingdom is so great that, that you can lay yourself down and take up and go the extra mile. Because usually people would just like drop the bag and throw it and utter something under their breath as they walked off. And Jesus said, no, 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 you can love your neighbor in a, in a profound, otherworldly kind of way. And that's the idea here. And Rome would come up and be like, you, do this. And so this guy, Simon, is just standing there. And yet Mark says who this guy's children are. Likely because the Roman church would have known who his children are. Because remember, the main audience of Mark is in Rome. Most likely. And in Romans, we hear that uh, the author, Paul, says, says, be sure to greet Rufus. Now, uh, he doesn't just put this in there because you want to have a, you and I want to have kids and we want to give them biblical names. And we're like, I really want to name my kid Rufus, but I don't know if it's biblical. Well, good news, it is. I think we have someone here whose dog is named Rufus, and um, those are, you know, that's how my wife always was. She's like, that's a good idea. Let's name a dog that, not a kid. Well, um, this is in there, though, because um, the author wants us to know that, that, that Simon was transformed by carrying the cross of Jesus, that an unwilling bystander was called out, and by taking up the cross of Jesus, it changed him. And if you remember, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up my cross. 
Let's be clear, this is still the cross of Jesus. Everything we're talking about is still, this is Jesus' cross, okay? This is what he came to do. But by being associated with it, Simon of Cyrene and his two kids who are there are changed forever, likely become worshipers, followers of Jesus. And then it continues on, right? He's been mocked, and it, and it says that and he went to, to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So Golgotha, if you've ever been to Israel or if you ever go there, um, let me just kind of set the record straight because I was confused. I went to Israel when I was in college, and I'm sure it hasn't changed a whole lot uh, since then. You go in, and it's inside the city. It's inside the, the wall of Jerusalem, and yet um, in the scriptures we're told that he was taken outside. And so what's going on there? Like, uh, certainly what happened is the walls have since expanded, so now Golgotha is inside. But also you go there, and it's kind of weird. It's like covered in gold. It's like it does not seem like this shameful place. And yes, it, it, it means something to you and me, but I think it would be more helpful if we realized just how, how gross this place was. It means the place of death. It, it smelled. It was a place where it had to be outside the city. And that's where Jesus is taken. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Well, wine mixed with myrrh. Why, is, why are these details in there? Wine mixed with myrrh would be given to kind of numb your senses, to kind of, to kind of, so it's something you could drink, right, while being crucified, to maybe numb it a little bit. But um, Jesus doesn't take it. Because if you remember, in a couple places, Jesus spoke about drink at the end of his day. And in Mark 14, 25, as he's having the Last Supper with his followers, he says, I will not drink of it again, until the kingdom comes anew. So he makes a promise. He says, I'm not going to drink this again until I bring in my kingdom once and for all. And also, if you remember, just a couple verses after that, is Jesus is in the garden, praying to his Father. He says, Dad, if there is any other way, if there's any other way to, create, to, to complete this story, if there's any other way for these people to be made right, if there's any other way for life and all its ugliness to be made right, let's do it that way. But then remember, he says, not my will, but your will. Because there's no other way. And we learn that the only drink that Jesus will drink, we'll see down in verses 33 through 39, is the cup of God's wrath. Is the effect of sin in all that you and I know it to be today. All of the reality of things not being the way they should be is the cup that Jesus will drink. So he says, no, he refuses it. He wants to go sober-minded and fully there. And so he, he offers himself up. And then, and then in the next verses, it goes on and it explains that Jesus is now taken out to be crucified. And it explains there's, a, there's an inscription above him that reads what? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. And remember, Rome and Israel didn't really see eye to eye on many things. They didn't really see eye to eye on, on even this title of King of the Jews. But they saw eye to eye in something that you and I both are all see eye to eye on. Naturally, we don't want a Lord. 
We want to be in control. We don't want a God who says, here's how I'm calling you to be a husband or a wife. Here's how I'm calling you to live. Here's how I'm calling you to interact with other people. Here's how I'm calling you. We don't want that. Because we've turned our backs on God. Because we want to be in control. And so similarly, Israel, the religious coming from this place, or Rome coming from this place, said, no, no, no. We don't want a Jesus who's Lord. We want whatever Jesus we want. We want one who will advance our cause. Just like you and me, naturally, as we are. We don't want a Jesus who's going to tell us what to do. We don't want a Jesus who's going to define our lives. So he's called the king of the Jews. And this was normal, by the way. Everyone being hung up there had an inscription that said what they did. Can you imagine? if you like Think about this right now. Think of if you were being put on the cross for whatever your life has looked like. And that's above you. Whatever kind of offenses, whatever thoughts, words, actions... That, that, you, that define us, those are there. And for Jesus, it's the king of the Jews. And then he continues on and explains who he's with. Pick up with me in verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And it goes on, and those who passed by derided him and wagged their heads and they mocked him and all these things. Who's Jesus with? Who's on his right and on his left? Robbers, thieves, the least of these, despicable people. I don't know how you view yourself, or I don't know how you view other people. But if you remember, like probably a lot of us, some of Jesus' closest followers were saying, Hey Jesus, on that final day, in your kingdom, can I sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus said, I don't know who gets that position. But again, what it means to follow me, it means to drink the cup that I'm drinking. It means to take up the cross that I will carry. And Jesus shows that the people who get to be on his right and on his left are the least of these, are the most despicable. These people, it says thieves here, but the the word likely means brigands. I know that's a word that we use in everyday language, right? Um, it's, it's just despicable people. It's the people you don't talk about at the dinner table. It's the people that you look down your nose at. It's the people that you lock your door when you're driving by. It's the people that you, or if you're on the other side, it's the people that you feel like everybody else sees you as. Wherever we are, that's where Jesus takes his victorious place. As he's bringing in his kingdom, he has on his right and on his left the least of these. The despicable, the most filthy. And um, I could continue on and pick right up, but in some of your Bibles, you might notice it goes from verse 27 to 29. You're like, where's 28? Error, they can't count. They went to ASU. Um, but, but what, I'm sorry. Um, but what, what happens here is if you look down in a footnote and some of your Some of your Bibles, it'll say something along the lines of, some of the manuscripts insert verse 28 that says this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. And this isn't an error, this isn't inerrancy in God's word in any way. Okay, this is the the very earliest manuscripts, and if anyone says there are contradictions in the Bible or things like that, the the very few are things like this. If some say the very earliest manuscripts likely didn't have verse 28, 
but then other manuscripts shortly thereafter included verse 28. It's not a big deal, and if it is to you, we can talk more on that. But I'm just, I, I did want to mention it, so that wasn't something you're like, what, where's verse 28? We've got to hit on that. But the main point is still there, right? It just articulates it a little differently. He took his place among the thieves. He took his place amongst the least of these. This was his plan from the very beginning. Jesus takes his place among the most despicable people. And then it continues on. And now it goes in kind of rapid succession, right? If you've ever seen like the old Batman or anything like that, or you've ever watched certain shows that just kind of come at you like boom, 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 scene, scene, you know, like, right? Like pow, bang. So the eight of you in here with me that grew up and watched the old Batman, we can take comfort along one another here. Um, the younger people among you, you should watch it. Um, actually, my kids love it, by the way. I mean, but that's their favorite Batman. All the cartoons, everything. They love the really old one where he has the short ears and it's all. But anyway, if you remember that, or if you don't, let me explain it. It kind of picks up the action and it just goes from scene. And it's like he punches the penguin. Boom! And then it comes over here. And then somebody else, you know, kicks the Joker. Pow! And all these scenes. Well, that's the way the author now picks it up and it just goes and it shows this scene in rapid succession and it's Jesus hanging there naked, shameful, abandoned on the cross, refusing to drink any other drink except the cup that he has come to drink. And he's hanging there and people are coming by and time is passing and it goes from this time to this time to this time in rapid succession from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. And it's going in this order and it's showing that God is, God's plan is continuing while Jesus is hanging there, exposed, shameful, excruciating. And everyone from his closest followers to the religious to the Roman guards is just, they're mocking him. They're calling out things like, Jesus, remember how you said two chapters ago? No, they don't know the chapters, but like, remember how you said you were going to tear down this temple? Remember that? <laughs> You're ridiculous and pathetic. And, and man, the patience that Jesus had. Can you imagine? I mean, guaranteed, if any one of us were there, we just, man, wink at the temple and let it just crumble. Be like, just wait, just wait. But Jesus knows that he has come to obey the Father's plan from eternity past. And so he stays there and he endures mockery and shame and temptation. And everyone, just like you and me, everyone is saying, hey, do things this way and then I'll believe in you. Jesus God, if you'll only do this, I'll believe in you. If you'll show yourself to me in this way, I'll follow you. If you'll do this, I'll trust you. And that's what people are doing. They're tempting Jesus and saying, hey, do this, then we'll believe. And yet he loves us too much. Hear me, if you have ever or are now asking that question, God loves you too much to be anything other than God. He loves you and me too much than to get down from the cross and to call the temple down and to call legions of 
angels down to usher in his kingdom in any other way because he knows it can come in no other way that your and my restoration and flourishing and hope can only come through what he has come to do. And that has been building up to now where we find ourselves in verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, okay, that's, that's noon. The sixth hour came, it's noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So that's three hours. It's noon. And this is historical, by the way. This is a, this actually happened. So Jesus is on the cross and it's noon. Where is the sun at noon? It's highest point. It's brightest point. And people have tried to explain this away and be like, I know it's an eclipse. But the time of the Passover and the Jewish people are on a lunar calendar and the way that the Passover happened, it would never ever fall during the time when there would be a lunar or a solar eclipse. So there's no way that an eclipse came. And by the way, if you weren't paying attention in uh, Astronomy 101, like I wasn't, um, eclipses don't last for three hours, right? It's like you, you know, cut a little piece of paper and you hold it over the ground and like for a couple of minutes you watch, you know, and then it's dark and then it starts to get more light again. So there's no way that it was dark for three hours by an eclipse. Or some, right, some might be like, well, I'm actually, I've looked into this more. It's in the Middle East, these giant storms blow up and this dust, sometimes for days, it's there, you can't see anything because dust and sand is everywhere. And whatever we want to see to justify or to, to take our, 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 our eyes away from the cross of Jesus and to maybe give ourselves a reason to believe some other story, we just don't have that option. Because this is during, again, the wet time of year where these dust storms don't just blow up. It would be more wet, every, the, the ground would be damp, the dust would not blow up. And I think God in His wisdom intentionally makes it dark at noon. The time when, there, when there's no other explanation, the sun is at its highest, because darkness symbolizes something. It symbolizes all throughout the Old Testament God's judgment. God is judging, and, and darkness comes. This is, this is true constantly throughout the Bible. When darkness comes during the time of the Passover, which we saw in Egypt, when, when darkness comes, God is judging. Okay, that, And we might grow numb to that, this idea of God judging. But all that we talked about, all the evil in the world, all the sin in the world, if God, the creator of it all, said it's not supposed to be like that, if a bully came in and started beating up your kids and started ruining your life and your family and the way you said things are supposed to be, and if God was anything other than good, he would sit back and be like, fine, go ahead. Go ahead and beat up my kids, go ahead and ransack my home, go ahead and do whatever you want. But because God is good, He judges what is not good. And so this darkness reminds us that God is judging. And this sets the stage for the judgment that we are witnessing right here. And it continues on that darkness means something else, okay? Like, for you and me, what does darkness represent? It, it represents disorientation, represents confusion and chaos. 
right? Like you, you don't find your way in the dark. Some authors have told stories of people that have gone on these excursions, maybe in a cave, or, 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 or someone in the 1940s took a group and they tried to, they tried to explore Antarctica, and, and the ship was wrecked, and they were stuck, and for two months it's dark, because the way the Earth's access is, they're in darkness for two months in Antarctica. And, and these people talk about the cold was awful, the, the, the hunger was unbearable, but the worst part of it all was the disorientation that came from the darkness. When their, all their oil burned out, they had no way of having light, and they were just in darkness 24-7 for months at a time. Let me ask you, is there something in your life, either in part or in whole, that would be defined by darkness, by disorientation? I think we all can convince ourselves that we're walking in the light in certain things. Okay, or perhaps think of it this way. We all have our lives revolving around something, and that gives us orientation. That gives us light, if you will. I don't know what it is for you. Um, it might be your family. It might be your career. It might be your health. It might be your, your plans for the future. It might be academia. It might be your intellect. It might be um, your particular job. It might be the respect of others. I don't know what it is, but there's something that orients our life. Again, this is another idea of understanding the story, that we're all in some particular story. We're all going to some particular cause. Well, we're all being oriented by something, and it might be a light, or we might think it's a light, but it was never created to be the sole source of light. Like the moon. I love the moon, I love when it's big, I love when it's orange, I love when it's on the horizon. And it could be easy to take for granted where the moon gets its light. Right? Everyone here knows the moon doesn't emit its own light, right? Again, I know some schools, maybe people don't learn that type of thing, but um, the, the moon doesn't emit its own light. It's a reflection of the sun. And the sun... The sun's light shines on it. That's why, that's why certain times of day, certain times of the year, certain times of all over, the bright, it, it looks different. Well, if you just said, you know, all I need is the moon. The moon is so good. And you forgot that it's a reflection of something else. You'd, eventually, your disorientation, your confusion would be exposed. The moon goes dark. You're, you're like, what happened? Well, all those other things, wealth, family, Intimacy, sexuality, our job, our, our, our everything that is good, that God created for you and me to experience as good, was created to be a reflection, not a replacement of the light. Okay? Amen? Let me say that again. Whatever you are orienting your life around, if it is not God and your identity and your purpose that is derived from Him then you have replaced him. And that always leads to disorientation. And so at some point, if that's your marriage, at some point the honeymoon wears off or the kids move out of the home or, or whatever it is, or, or your physical appearance changes and whatever it is, whatever you're revolving your life around that, that, that ceases to be a reflection of the God who created it and who defined how it ought to be, once you replace him with that, eventually it is exposed and then all hope is lost. 
And so you no longer look at your marriage or your job or, or, or your hobbies or whatever they are as good gifts from God to reflect Him and to bring joy and to lead to worship. You now instead worship that thing and you've replaced God altogether and disorientation ensues. Very, very simply put, life not the way it's supposed to be can be classified as darkness. So God's judgment and disorientation come crashing in as Jesus is hanging on the cross. And then, in a climactic moment, the climactic moment, it picks up and we read in verse 34, the one time that Jesus cries out, at the ninth hour, He cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And he's actually quoting the first verse of a psalm, Psalm 22, that begins with those very words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of time, I'm not going to dive into that. I encourage you to read that. It walks through and it's very clearly a prophetic passage that is pointing toward what we're witnessing here where it talks about uh, the Son of Man uh, hanging on a cross and, and being, being having people wagging their heads and shaming Him and His ribs being exposed and His hands and His feet being pierced. So it is clearly talking about Jesus. But Jesus, remember in the garden, He says, Dad. But here He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Dad, Dad, why are you forsaking me? He says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And he says that because in that moment, he's representing you and me. Do you remember God's promise to you, to us? I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that cannot be true as God intends it to be true, unless Jesus hangs there and says on behalf of us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's asking the question that you and I ask. Why? Why is it this way? Why does this stuff happen? Why does Paris happen? Why does Beirut happen? Why does all the evil, why does betrayal happen? Why am I in this place? Why have I never met my father? Why don't I get the job that I feel like I deserve? Why is my life the way it ought to be? And the short answer, hear me, the short answer is sin. And that could be the most mean answer when someone is honestly asking that question, it's not rightly fleshed out. Why is this happening to me? And then the pastor shows up, sin. Well, thanks, that was really comforting. But in that moment, what we're hearing, in this moment, what we're seeing is it's not the way it's supposed to be. Whatever you're going through, whatever tragedy you are experiencing is not the way it's supposed to be. And so when Jesus hangs on that cross and asks that question, why, on our behalf, part of the answer is because this 
is what sin brings. This is what the distorted story brings. This is what the message of there is no God and He has no people, or there is a God and it's someone other than the God of the Bible, it's someone other than the good Creator who has given you identity and purpose. Any other story, any other orientation leads to this. What Jesus is experiencing on the cross. And so the answer is... It's not the way it's supposed to be, and that's a picture of it, and Jesus is putting an end to it. Because the other part of the answer to that question, why? Because Jesus knows that this is the way it has to be done. That for there to be any hope in an answer to that question of why things are the way they are right now, it's because Jesus is putting an end to it. Is because in order for the full effect of sin to be done away with, to be put to death, Jesus has to drink that cup of judgment, of wrath, of sin. And in that moment, hear me, look at me, He embodies every sin that you have ever committed or that has ever been committed against you. Jesus, in this moment, takes all of that upon Himself. So whatever shame that has come from sin, where we hide ourselves from one another and from God, where we, where we metaphorically cover our nakedness and try to put on a face, where we blindlessly wander in the dark and try to orient ourselves around something else, Jesus takes all of that upon Himself on the cross. And in that moment, God in His holiness and His goodness cannot dwell with that. In order for it to be put to an end, Jesus endures the forsaking of His Father on your and my behalf. And in that moment, what happens? The very last part of this we now read. Verse 38, The curtain of the temple was torn in two. It says that Jesus uttered His last breath. The last thing He would say. He yelled that out. And then he dies. And right in that moment, the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Right? No big deal, right? It's a shower curtain. It's No, the curtain was this massive curtain, thick, huge. And what it did is it separated the people from the holiness of God. Because if unholy, sinful, shameful, naked Judgment-deserving people come crashing into the presence of God. His wrath would be poured out. There could be no relationship. There could be, there could be nothing. There could be no access. And so this curtain represented, it is impossible for sinful people to have any kind of relationship with a holy God. And yet, in that moment, when Jesus takes the cup that you and I deserve and experience, apart from Christ, upon Himself, the curtain is ripped in two. And how is it ripped? From bottom to top? Right? A bunch of people got in there, they gave it the old college try. I try to do good. I haven't killed anyone. I do the best I can. The good outweighs the bad. All the things that we want to utter that we say now makes us right with God. The comparison to other people. Is that how this, how this division between man and God is torn from bottom to top? No, it is clearly done in such a way that you and I could never do. 
that by God's undeserved favor, because of the joy set before Jesus, because of his love for you, because of his commitment to establish a people to flourish and thrive under his name, under his rule, in relationship to him, restored together, restored in all of life, he rips the curtain, the impenetrable place that separates you and me from Almighty God has been ripped apart, and the invitation is there. You get an all-access pass. Because Jesus has taken the cup upon himself, because Jesus has taken your shame and your sin, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, he took it on, and now you can run. Other languages used as adoption, sons and daughters, joyful, worshipful, And then the very last part of this, in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way breathed his last, he said, truly this was the Son of God. The first time that a person would would respond in worship to Jesus is an undeserving, Gentile, sinful person. Again, how do you see yourself? How do you see others? This person never went to Awana. He never went to, he never had a quiet time. He wasn't a good guy. He didn't do better than, he didn't try his hardest. Undeserving. The veil had been torn. He rightly saw Jesus and he responded. So as I close, I want to ask this. First, if you're here today and you have never put your trust in Jesus, will this day day be your day? Well, this day, for the first time, you will see that you're undeserving. That a centurion who was a brutal, he had killed people. He likely ate his lunch while watching these kind of crucifixions. He was so numb. He was so shameful. And yet, when his eyes were rightly opened and he saw Jesus and what he came to do for him, he responds in worship. Is this the day where you will respond in worship? I invite you and encourage you to come talk to me, to talk with whoever you came with. There will be people in the back as we close who will pray to go and talk with them, to ask for prayer. And for all of us here, will this be a time of sober celebration where we look at the cross. It has a red sash because it symbolizes blood. And we look at that. You cannot look at this cross right now as we respond, as we sing the songs we're about to sing. You cannot be apathetic. I don't see that that's an option. You can't look at the cross and be like, whatever. The good outweighs the bad. No. You look at it and you see sin and shame and you see the way it should not be. And then you also see hope. You also see a curtain torn in two, and an all-access pass, and an invitation to come to have your identity and your purpose restored because we together and individually sing out in response. Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to respond in worship. Um, Lord, thank you for your word and the opportunity to to enter into it. Or thank you for the good news that we've seen here today that um, I hope has been made abundantly clear that there is no other way. There's no way to, to, Lord, there's no way to you. And also there's no way to hope. There's no way to life. 
to every other story that we believe, that we're tempted to believe, the story of hopelessness, the story of nihilism, the story of self-fulfillment, the story of prosperity, the story of capitalism, the story of communism, the story of self-help, the story of religion, of good effort, whatever it might be, that ends in disorientation and judgment. And yet the story of God, the true story, that you have laid your life down, you have taken on all the effects of sin that we deserve when you put an end to it. You said it is finished so that we may now respond in worship now and in all of life. And I pray that you will lead us there through God the Holy Spirit as we individually and corporately declare you are the Son of God and in you alone is hope and life eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.